We left the story off last week on a Monday. It was four days before Passover, and we left off the story with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. In between Monday and where we pick up the story today, we're picking up the story today on Saturday. So a lot has happened in the meantime that I can't take all of this morning to summarize. But here's what I can tell you happened. Let's skip ahead to, let's skip, let's skip ahead to, to the end of the week. I'm sorry, we're actually starting to reading it Friday. Let's skip ahead to Thursday. We left off at Monday. Let's go to Thursday. Thursday, Jesus' disciples prepare the Passover feast. Jesus leads the Last Supper. Now, they didn't call it the Last Supper. The, the disciples didn't quite get it that it was the last time Jesus was eating with them in that way. But Jesus leads, leads a meal, a Passover meal with his disciples late, late on Thursday night. About midnight, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays. And between midnight of Friday and 9 a.m. on Friday, the following things happen. One, Jesus is arrested illegally. And I don't have time to fold that all out for you, but if you know Jewish law at all, you know everything about his arrest was illegal by their own laws. The next thing he does is he goes through not one, two, but six Six trials in nine hours. Would that fly in today's court system? How long does it take to go through a trial? He goes through six. And in order for them to get through six trials, they have to break dozens more laws. Everything about it is unjust, most of it illegal, and a lot of it erroneous. He starts with Annas and Caiaphas, trial number one. He goes to the Sanhedrin, trial number two. And they didn't take time to sleep on it like they were supposed to before they voted. They voted right then and there, even though they had a dissenter. They voted to convict him because here is the deal. Roman law could, could sentence someone to death. But Jewish law, you couldn't sentence someone to death. The Romans didn't allow that. The Romans allowed the Jews to try somebody to convict them, but they couldn't kill them. So even though the Jews convicted Jesus on the charge of blasphemy... They couldn't kill him, so they needed to get some political collusion on their side. So the third trial, they send him to Herod Antipas. A lot about him that I can't tell you today, but he was the Jewish ruler. But now they start a game of hot potato, because Herod doesn't want to be the guy to do it. So Herod says, yeah, not really my call. I can't sentence him to death. Let's send him to Pilate for trial number four. He gets to Pilate. This all happens in nine hours. They send him to Pilate. Pilate doesn't really want to be the guy to make the call. He plays hot potato, sends Jesus back to Herod. Herod plays hot potato again, sends him back to Pilate. And at the sixth trial, Pilate says, what is the charge? And they don't say blasphemy. They flip on him. They say it's treason because, you see, the Romans wouldn't crucify Jesus for blasphemy. So they had to change their charge and say it's really treason. He's calling himself a king because treason carried a death penalty. And finally, Pilate gives in sentences him to death. Jesus is scourged. He's mocked. He's beaten. He's stripped naked. They put a fake robe on him, a crown of thorns, a scepter in his hand. They beat him again. They rip it off. It opens the scabs. He's scourged. He's beaten so bad they can't even physically recognize his identity anymore. And then they begin to walk him up to Golgotha. So in about two minutes, that's several days. It is now Friday sometime after 9 a.m. or sometime right around 9 a.m. Now I'll read to you. Mark chapter 15. I'll read from here because I can see a little bit better. Verse 21. We're going to cover the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection. 
I know it's a lot of ground to cover, but thank goodness we're covering it from Mark because Mark doesn't go into a whole lot of detail. He moves pretty quick. But it's hard for us to understand the resurrection if we can't put it together with what's going on in the hours and the days right before it. Mark 15, 21. A passerby named Simon who was from Cyrene was coming in from the countryside just then. And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine, drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. So we'll pause here for just a second. I just want to point out, I don't want to give a whole lot of commentary. Let me tell you, it is very intimidating to sit in this seat this morning and know that it's up to you to, to communicate the historical fact of the greatest event in all of history. The last thing you want to do is add anything to it or take away from it. There's so much power in this fact. And so I want to do the best that I can this morning to just allow the Holy Spirit to bring the word to life today. That's why I don't want to skip over much and add a lot of commentary. Because I will tell you, as best as I can discern it, I have felt in a very tangible way the presence of a living God in my life this morning. Even as I say that, I don't have hairs on my head to stand up, but I've got chill bumps all over me. And I'm German, we don't do much with chill bumps. <laughs> it's just a way that God reveals to me when he's present and he's active, and I feel him so alive today, and I don't want to miss out on any moment of it, so I really want you to dial in on what we're reading. A couple things just so that you understand what's going on here. Um, it was customary when someone was crucified for them to carry their own structure on which they would be crucified upon to the place of death, so they would have put this long, the, the cross piece of the cross, it was called a patibulum, would have weighed between 30 and 40 pounds. It was customary for them to put it on the shoulders of the convicted and make them carry it from the point of sentencing to the point of, of their execution. So again, we're talking about his arms being stretched out. You know, he's not carrying it like this. They're putting it on his shoulders like this, probably would have tied the ends to his arms. So he doesn't even have the ability to steady himself. This is 40 pounds of lumber, which Jesus wouldn't have been unaccustomed to carrying growing up as an architect, as a carpenter, but he's never had to carry it after nine hours of dehydration, beating, blood loss, probably internal injuries, all kinds of other things going on here. Also, this was probably not a piece of lumber that was sanded smooth like what he would have done. This lumber was not made as an act of love or a piece of furniture. It's a torture device. So it was probably very rough. There's probably not much flesh left on his shoulders at this point. So when they put this patibulum on his shoulders, that open splintery wood is being pressed right down into the open lacerations on his back. And he begins the short journey because they, could, they weren't, by their Jewish law, they weren't allowed to execute someone inside the walls of their city. It was a walled city. They had to do it nearby but outside the walls. So Jesus walks from the place where he's, he's sentenced outside the walls. And because of the dehydration and the blood loss and all of the stuff he's gone through over the past nine hours, there's a point where he physically is unable to get this cross up the mountain. And Jesus is a strong man. So that shows you the severity with which he was beaten. So they choose, at random it appears, a North African Jew who is traveling from North Africa, from the countryside, and he's headed in the direction of Jerusalem, most likely because he's coming to celebrate Passover. They choose him, Simon of Cyrene, at random out of the crowd, and they force him to carry the, the patibulum the rest of the way up the hill. They tell us it was he was crucified... Um, 
at Golgotha, which the translation is place of the skull. Not sure exactly why they give it that name. Those of you who have been to Israel and we are uh, putting together some informational meetings, I would, I'm willing to lead a trip to Israel next March. If you would like to go along, we'll have some meetings coming up um, about what that might look like for us to actually go and tour the Holy Land together. Um, but the, it, I have been there, and you can, if you look at where they believe Golgotha is, you can kind of make out in the rock, it's a very rocky hill, uh, you can kind of make out the outline of a skull in the rock, it could mean that, it could be because there was other dead bodies buried there, we don't exactly know, but it was at a specific place, it wasn't on some random place, it was at Golgotha, they lead him up the hill, and then they offer him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. A lot of research you can do on this, but let me just give you the summary. Here's what I'm confident that we know. This is likely, off, we don't know who offered it to him specifically. Don't know who offered it to him. Here's what we know. To drug it with myrrh, we know that it was some type of a pain deadening agent. In other words, he's offered some type of, of fluid that will help him deaden some of the pain. But he refuses it because Jesus wants to endure all of the suffering with every one of his senses intact. He's willing to endure the hell and the penalty of every sin of every human being, past, present, and future, on him without having any of his senses dulled. He wants to take the full. Remember in the garden, he says, if it's possible to let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. And God makes it clear that the cup isn't going to pass now. He says, I'll take the cup. I'll take all of it. I'll take all of it. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. Mark only uses eight words here to describe something that um, really gory and graphic. They divided his clothes and they threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning, so we have a time stamp here. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. So he includes a lot of detail in short order. Matthew, Luke, and John give more detail at different space here. But Mark is just, he's using a lot of restraint to say, then they nailed him to the cross. He only gives us eight words. I've preached about more detail about what crucifixion was in the past. And my goal today is not to go deep into the details of crucifixion. But understand when they crucified somebody... They typically tied their hands. And the reason that they did that is that it would prolong death for, some time, for a number of hours, even a number of days at times. But when they nailed someone's hand to the cross piece and they nailed their feet, it caused additional pain and allowed additional blood loss and it would expedite the process. Sometimes in crucifixion, death would come very slow based on the severity of you know the severity of their beatings and their scourging prior to it based on the weather based on how they were attached to the cross and if it went on too long the soldiers would come and they would actually use a club and break the legs of the person they were crucifying so that it would accelerate their death it minimized their ability to continue to breathe and pull themselves up and it would just accelerate the process in other cases death could come very quickly if the beating was very severe the blood loss was extreme we can see how extreme Jesus's beating was when John records that when the soldiers came to break Jesus's legs to accelerate the process he was already dead so a very strong man he was beaten based on how they typically would beat someone from other cases his his punishment was definitely at the more or at the most severe end of everything they divided his clothes they threw dice why does he include that? It seems to be a random detail. It was predicted in the Old Testament. That was another detail that was included in the Old Testament that says, here's a way to know that the Messiah will come. This is going to happen at his, at his murder. 
a wooden board stating the charge against a condemned man was standard. Anytime that they crucified somebody, they'd put a wooden board on the top and they'd say why they were being crucified is probably how we get the details about the incriminating charges of of the other two. There were at least two other uh, criminals. There may have been more. Crucifixion was done en masse many times. Um, Unusual to do it on Passover for the Jews because, you know, this was not a thing that they wanted to have on Passover. So they wanted it done by the time Passover started at Sabbath. So there's a time concern here. Um, by, at sundown, their Sabbath began, and the Jews did not. I mean, they, they're very, very concerned about some of their laws in some ways, but not other ones. And so um, there's all these different mitigating factors that are going into this. This wooden sign, we don't have an exact translation. It varies a little bit from here to there, but the crux of it is that he, he's, the, he, he's being uh, crucified because he called himself a king. And the Romans said, we have just one king. And if this guy's calling himself a king, that is an act of treason, and that is punishable by death. And so he puts himself, he calls himself the king of the Jews. So that's why the charge is up above his head. And the little bit that Mark tells us about the others being crucified along Jesus, that they were insurrectionists, they were part of some kind of a rebellion. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. So the people are mocking him. And of course, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, they're not home preparing for Passover. They wouldn't miss miss out on an opportunity to rub this in Jesus' face again. So here they are, also mocking Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself and isn't the grand irony of all of this that even in their shriveled dark hardened heart condition they still can't deny the saving power of Jesus even in this condition they affirm you saved others they're giving him they're saying listen we can't argue with the fact you have the power to save people because you know what they knew Lazarus died and they went and shook his hand They met the people who they knew for years were blind and they saw them and could see that they had regained their sight. They could not deny the fact that he had already saved others and even in their shriveled, bitter condition, what they're really saying is, yes, you do have the power to save. We can't deny that. Even the haters just can't get underneath and undo the facts about who Jesus is here. Such a powerful statement. He says... Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. So it's clear this happened in a public area where people could go by and vent their hostilities. Why are they so angry? Because he let them all down. They wanted Jesus to be a different kind of Jesus than Jesus actually was. And when Jesus did not give them what their hearts wanted, they turned on him. They wanted him to get rid of Herod Antipas, who they hated. They wanted him to lead a rebellion with them, by, with them behind him. They wanted him to lead the charge of the Roman Empire. They knew with his supernatural powers, not only could he strike, he had power over the winds, he had power over the waves, he could strike people dead, he could raise people to life, he could deliver demons. They actually even saw him create food out of nothing. So even if the Romans tried to separate them from their food source, they knew that this guy could keep them alive indefinitely. He fit everything they wanted in a political and military messianic uprising, except for the fact that he wasn't willing at that time to come and unseat the Jews and the Romans to die. And when they found out that Jesus was other than who they wanted him to be, the same people who worshipped him on Monday 
and said, come be our king. They were singing the psalms out loud. They were singing songs of praise. They were caught up in hysteria. They threw their coats down. They said, come and walk on us. Come and rule us. You're the king. The same people by Friday are going out of their way to mock him. And it's the same thing that happens to so many of us today. When Jesus doesn't do what, he, what we want him to do, when he doesn't give us the life we think he owes us, when he doesn't come through the way that we want him to, we turn on him. We soften, walk away, we cool down. We don't make him our king anymore. And here we see people venting this anger. And even the teachers and the religious leaders, these are the people who should have been the best possible example to the people. These are the ones who held all of the religious power and authority. These are the ones who knew the Old Testament scriptures. These are the ones who were supposed to demonstrate the example of godliness. God's representative to the people. And what are they doing? They're leading in the mockery. And here's what they're saying. They're saying, Jesus, you have an incredible platform right now to really prove your messianic properties. You've got a stage built for you. Look, look at the way the magic trick has been set up for you. You've got us all in suspense. You've teased us all. You've heightened. The payoff could be right here. What is, you've heightened all the drama. You've got all the heat. The payoff is right here in front of you. If you're really the Messiah, we've built you a ready-made stage. Come down off the cross. Save yourself. And the grand, the grander irony, and even, the, even in their own absence, is that what Jesus is actually doing on the ready-made stage is showing them exactly how he can be the Messiah. But it's not him saving himself. It's him giving himself up. They're saying, if you're really the Messiah, now's your chance to prove it. Come down. And he's saying, I am going to prove it to you, but not in my coming down. It's in my giving myself up. And right there they are, and right there they miss it. Let's keep reading. The death of Jesus, verse 33. At noon, so there's three hours, three hours from when the process of crucifixion begins to this moment. Three hours of everything we just read about. How awful, right? At noon, darkness falls across the whole land until 3 o'clock. Then at 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood, and they thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. So one of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, wait, everybody. Let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Now I'm reading it with a specific tone to indicate actually what's going on here. This is not an act of compassion. This is an act of subhuman treatment and mockery for their own entertainment. Three o'clock, or sorry, 12 o'clock, darkness falls across the land for three hours. Don't miss that detail. Much, much, much has been written about this. Mark doesn't give us the cause. Was it an eclipse? Was it the winds that would come from a certain part? Was it some type of, um, was it some type of other natural phenomenon? We don't know exactly what it was. It could have been those things, but what we're supposed to see is this is God being present at the crucifixion in the form of judgment. If you read through all of the Old Testament, you'll see not only at times did God manifest in light, at times the withholding of light was a way that God demonstrated his judgment. And so what we're seeing is that God is not absent from the crucifixion. He's, this is hard. I wish I could unpack this. He is present in the form of punishing his son. 
and he's present in the form of showing judgment to the world. And why is he doing this? Because in this time, Jesus is taking upon himself all of the sin, past, present, and future. Not his own sin. There was no sin to take upon himself. He had to allow himself to bear all of my sin, all of your sin, everything, past, present, and future. And God brings a manifestation of his presence in a different way. He doesn't come to comfort. He comes to demonstrate judgment. And so we see darkness fall over the space of three hours. Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lema, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's seven times Jesus speaks on the cross. If you read all the gospel accounts, Mark only records one of them, and it's probably the one most difficult for us to grasp. Many people have written about it. Many people have researched it. Many people have preached about it. There's no possible way I can do justice to it. The meaning of this is beyond our human emotion ability to really grasp. My God, my God, says it twice. There's a whole sermon in the fact of when in, in, in that culture when you said somebody's name two times. My God, my God. In other words, it's not any God, it's his God. Very personal. He says, why have you forsaken me? And is he making a statement about God's absence? Because in a way we see his presence here in darkness. He's quoting from the Psalms. He doesn't finish the Psalm. At the very least, what we know is going on this. It is the effort of a human Jesus to somehow articulate the absolute terror and horror that he has never experienced of separation from his father due to the obstruction of sin. His reaction to separation from his father, even momentarily because of sin, even though God is present, he's separated from him. How can God be everywhere and yet I don't feel him? Probably because there's an obstruction there. There's a veil, so to speak. And Jesus, for the first time in his life, is experiencing this. And his reaction is terror. When you sin, is there any terror or even recognition? Hopefully that wasn't someone's Easter present. (laughs) Someday we'll have less echoey floors, right? And we'll be able to drop things and spill things without them running to the front. (laughs) How do you transition from that back into a conversation about Jesus dying? I guess like this. So have you ever been in a situation where you sinned and you didn't even recognize the separation between you and God? What intimacy for Jesus to have with his father that the moment it begins to be severed, his reaction is absolute terror. I could try and tell you stories. My two-year-old is just getting to the place where there is this separation anxiety. Jesus is not an anxious person. This, is a, this illustration falls short. But I know when it's just my two-year-old and I at home, if I'm not in the room, he knows immediately. And he starts calling, Dada, are you Dada? Dada. And I have to reassure him until he can see me. He is completely uncomfortable with my absence. Okay, my seven-year-old, sometimes he actively tries to get me out of the room, right? He actively seeks some separation. But in the same way I see discomfort and terror settle into my two-year-old because his whole level of identity is based on intimacy with his daddy. You hear Jesus, you see some of that terror settle in of what it's like to be separated from his father, what kind of a relationship the two of those have, Jesus and his father. You see some of that come to bear here, and you see him 
scream out. In their language, the E-L-O-I, Eloi, Eloi sounds very similar to Elijah. And in that day and time, Elijah, because, okay, Elijah didn't ever die, right? Elijah went to heaven in a chariot. They believed that Elijah was the forerunner and the assistant to Messiah. And they also believed that Elijah was available at beck and call to help and to aid in times of distress, to bring joy and to bring comfort. So here's what the people think is going on. They think Jesus, in a messianic delusion, is calling Elijah to come and rescue him from the cross. And because none of them think he's really the Messiah and they see Jesus dying, they want to artificially hydrate him long enough to keep him alive for their own entertainment to see if this really plays out. So that's why someone rushes to get him fluid. This is not an act of compassion. This is people trying to keep a dying man long enough to give him a little more entertainment. Can you imagine the restraint Jesus has to demonstrate here? The man who gave them life is now putting his life in their hands. There's so much going on here. So much that Jesus had to endure. Let's keep reading verse 37. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. After six hours of torture, Jesus has enough strength left to make one final loud cry. Now, what is he doing here? First of all, he's showing us that he's not letting the people decide to take his life. He's deciding he's going to lay his life down. And like an act of defiance, let's see how long. We have the power, Jesus, to keep you alive or we can break your legs and kill you. He says, nope, you don't get to decide whether I live and you don't get to decide whether I die. It is now time for me to die. I'm going to cry out with a loud voice. It's not a cry of defeat, though. It is a cry of triumph. We know from some of the other gospel writers what he says. He says, it is what? Finished. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, I am finished. It is is finished. In other words, it's relief and it's triumph. The pain and the suffering of this entire cup he was supposed to drink, the feeling of the experience, you know what he's experiencing in separation from God? He's experiencing the hell he's trying to save us from. All of this is now finished. The old law is now fulfilled and finished. And he decides it is finished. And he decides it's victorious. And he decides to lay his life down and breathe his last. No man took Jesus' life. He laid it down for you. He laid it down for me. And he breathed his last. And the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Again, so much written about this. There were at least a dozen veils in the temple. Curtains, tall curtains. This one's referring to the, the, the kind of the final veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. Nobody could go in there except the high priest. The high priest could only go in once a year and only for a few moments because moments, that's where God's presence dwelled in all of its undiluted power and intensity. And you could not go in there without a covering and live. And once a year, the high priest, after this long, long purification process, 
would be allowed to go in for a few moments. Um, and if they went in there uncovered, if they went in there with any of their sins not covered by the blood, or if they went in there with a the sacrifice God didn't accept, they would fall dead. They had to tie a rope around their ankles and pull them out so the people that went in to get the dead body wouldn't fall dead. And you have a big pile of dead bodies inside of the Holy of Holies. The curtain didn't protect God from the people, it protected the people from God. And what happens when it's ripped from the top to the bottom, which is only a supernatural act that could have done this, is what God is saying is that you don't need this curtain anymore. At 3 o'clock p.m. on April the 14th, A.D. 30, at that specific moment in history, the old covenant was fulfilled, satisfied, and rendered obsolete and unnecessary. That moment in history. The curtain is now open. It says, you are welcome to come in, covered in Jesus. You are welcome to come in. This is no longer necessary. My presence can now be among you and you can be with me. At that moment, this happens. This is finished. This is accomplished. Okay? This is huge. This is huge. Let's keep reading. Some women, I'm sorry, uh, verse 39. When the Roman officer, when the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. You got a centurion, isn't it interesting that among the first people who <laughs> enter into relationship with Jesus and really, the, the whole gospel of Mark, if you go back to the first verse of Mark, Mark says the whole reason I'm writing this is to prove Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of man. This is the whole point. And isn't it interesting that nobody puts it together until for 15 chapters and 38 verses, and then on the 15th chapter and the 39th verse, and the first person who understands the point of the whole gospel is the guy who oversees his crucifixion, a pagan Roman centurion who saw every detail of Jesus' scourging, every whip against his back was recorded, he oversaw every part of his torture, he watched the whole thing, he sees the darkness, he feels the earthquake, he sees everything happen, he sees how he dies, and the first person who puts it all together is the worst of the worst. Truly, this man was the son of God. He saw it all and it moved him deeply. It moved a criminal on the cross deeply. Isn't it such good to know that salvation came first to the worst of the worst of the worst? The very people who had their hands in murdering Jesus are their first ones who say he's the son of God. Isn't that such a beautiful, reassuring message to all of us? That the gospel can penetrate even the hardest heart, the deepest sin, the worst past, the deepest history. Let's keep reading. Verse 40. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. Don't miss out on this. The disciples had split for the most part already. Right? You've got John there. But who's there? The women who are also disciples and followers of Jesus that had been in his company since Galilee. They're there, but they're keeping their distance. What a horrible thing for a mom to have to watch. And there she is. There she is, right? Let's go to, ver let's go to verse 42. This all happened. This is the burial of Jesus. This all happened on a Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. As evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and he goes to Pilate, and he asks for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member, member of the high council, the same group of people who passed judgment on Jesus way back a few hours ago. He was a member of that council hall. However, he didn't vote along with them. He was a dissenter. 
He was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. So Mark includes this for those of us who didn't grow up with Jewish ethnicity. He says this is preparation day. It refers to the day before Sabbath, and it's for the benefit of the non-Jewish reader. Sabbath began at sundown, 6 o'clock p.m. is when on Friday Sabbath begins. We know at 3 o'clock Jesus cries out with a loud voice. So listen, here's what has to happen logistically. Between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., Jesus, by 6 p.m., Jesus has to be buried. It's probably about 4 o'clock when Jesus dies. They've got two hours. I'm not trying to diminish what this is, but just looking at it forensically. They've got to get a body off the cross. They've got to wash it completely clean. They've got to prepare it, pr- prepare it properly according to Jewish burial rites. They have to transport it from the cross to some type of a grave, which either they have to dig or create. And they've got to get him buried and be completely done by sundown. They've got two hours to accomplish all this. This is why Joseph of Arimathea, seeing that nobody from Jesus' body has stepped, Jesus' family has stepped forward to take care of Jesus' body or to claim it, he springs into action because if he doesn't, Jesus' body is going to end up in a common criminal's grave, and that's too much for Joseph to bear. So he takes a risk, and he goes to Pilate. Now, what makes this risky? Think about this. He is now unavoidably, irrevocably identifying himself as a sympathizer and an identifier with Jesus. Which even if Pilate wasn't going to push us any further, pretty much puts him, completely puts a bullseye on his back with the same counsel that just crucified Jesus because he was one of them. But in light of everything he just observed and his heart's belief about who Jesus was, he goes to Pilate and he asks for permission to have Jesus' body and to prepare it for burial. When he goes to Pilate, let's keep reading, verse 44, Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead. So he calls for a third-party verification. He calls for the Roman officer, same guy we just read about that said truly this was the Son of God. This all has to happen in two hours, right? So this is all happening in pretty close proximity. He calls for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that he was dead, so Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. So everything checks out. Pilate's shocked because normally someone who they started their crucifixion at 9, they don't die by 4 o'clock in the afternoon. This, again, shows the severity with which Jesus was beaten prior to being crucified. This is very, very unusual for this to happen so fast. Let's keep reading. Verse 46, Joseph brought a long sheet of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. So much here, I can only hit the highlights. We learn from Matthew's account, Joseph was a wealthy man, okay? So he probably, for him to get this done, he couldn't have done it by himself. He probably has at least, A, a group of servants who would have been in his employ who could come and help him take care of this. And we also read from John's account, John's account, that Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus way back in the John chapter 3 story, the guy that came to Jesus at night and says, hey man, I, I got to know, know who you really are. And they get it, you get into this really famous verse about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's all in that conversation. Nicodemus comes to help. Okay. So Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, probably the servants are there. They bring the linen cloth and they, they accomplish everything that would have, would have been necessary under Jewish burial rites. They would have had to take his blood-soaked body and wash it completely clean, wrap him in the linen, and then they would have implied, they would have applied the embalming spices and whatnot that goes with them. And they put him in a tomb. This is an important clue um, looking at archaeology and things like that. They put him in a man-made tomb that was hand-carved out of rock. 
Okay? There are not many of them that you can find from that day. I think they've only found to, to this point three of them that were within kind of walking distance or nearby to where Golgotha is. So this is where he's put. Stone is rolled in front of it. Lot, lots and lots and lots and lots about stone. Here it says he rolled it. Other places it said it took multiple people to roll it. They're not necessarily incompatible. I can't unwind all of that for you today, but we know the tomb was sealed. And there's an important de detail at the end. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were there. They're sitting there probably observing this whole preparation process. And they also are, are marking where it is so that they, they have plans to come back. So let's move on to the best part of the story. Let's move on to the best part. Chapter 16. On Saturday evening, when Sabbath ended, this is 6 p.m., so Jesus, okay, Jewish time works a little differently than ours. Days are marked by sunup and sundown, not midnight like ours are. So Jesus is, he says, three days he's in the tomb. So he's in the tomb, this is important detail, before 6 p.m. on Friday. So that counts as day one, okay? Six, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday is day two. Sundown Saturday into Sunday is day three, Okay? So Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ends, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. That's Saturday night. Why don't they go Saturday night? It's dark, so they wait till Sunday. Very early Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, there's something occupying their mind. They're planning to go to the tomb, and there's a detail that they didn't consider. Who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? You know, when you're grieving, you're not always thinking logically, are you? Right? Wouldn't you think about that? You know, we should probably bring some muscle with us. They're not. It's also, these spices serve no practical benefit. They weren't embalming spices. They weren't necessary. This wasn't an expected rite. It actually serves no practical purpose other than to maybe deal with some of the odor caused by a decomposing body. All it is is just a last act of love. And when you really love somebody, sometimes you do things that have no practical meaning whatsoever. That's the condition that they're in as they're going to the tomb. They're not thinking through all their details just right. They're, they're, they're grieving. They're shocked. They're bewildered. They're terrified. They're all of these things. They're not going expecting to find an open tomb. They're going expecting to find a closed tomb. Okay? This is what they're expecting. But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. Their chief concern is how to move the heavy stone, which they knew had been rolled in front of the tomb. No matter what kind of stone it was, whether it was a big boulder, whether it was a flat stone that had been like rolled in a track, there's all kinds of different theories on this. All we know is that they tell us it was big, it was heavy, and they knew they were not capable of rolling it. And when they got there, it had been rolled open. I will tell you it was not rolled open to let Jesus out. It was there to let them in. Jesus did not need any human being or anybody else to help him get out, okay? It was rolled open to let them in. Mark attempts to make, or Mark makes no attempt to tell us how it happened. But he does say the very large stone had already been rolled aside. Verse 5. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked. Again, Mark's very understated here. Shocked is probably an understatement, right? But the angel said, don't be alarmed. The natural response is alarm. <laughs> Where is my son's body? Why is the stone moved? Why is it so bright in here? 
what have they already been through these last few days? <laughs> and now this. He says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, he says, look, look. You were here yesterday. Look at this spot. There was a body here. It's not here anymore. Now, go and tell his disciples beautiful, beautiful two words, including Peter. Jesus was so excited to apply his resurrection power to restoring someone who sold him out. What's his priority? Go tell Peter. He's been restored. Go tell Peter. He's been forgiven. Go tell, go tell the disciples and also tell Peter because Peter's probably not with them because he probably doesn't even want to show face. He's so ashamed of what he did. You go tell him. It's finished. He's forgiven. He's restored. He's welcome. Friend, Jesus is trying to tell you it's finished. You're forgiven. It's buried. It's a new day. You get another chance. Stop beating yourself. Stop replaying it. Stop punishing yourself. What he did on the cross finished your punishment. What he did on the cross abolishes your shame. What he did on the cross, he cannot wait to apply all of that suffering to your life today. Will you just accept it? Will you just receive it? Will you just walk in it? Will you just let it go? He's trying to apply it to you today. Peter was on the forefront of his mind. He leaves a messenger there. Listen, the most important event of history, of all the things there were eyewitnesses for, there's one thing there were no eyewitnesses for, and that is the actual resurrection of Jesus. No human being saw that dead body come back to life. No human being saw it. We weren't allowed in there to see it. But isn't it cool that God leaves, I think, an eyewitness there? He lets some supernatural angel there. Now, I can't prove that the angel was actually, it doesn't really matter. Whether the angel saw it or not doesn't matter about the fact of the resurrection. Produce the body, we can talk, right? Tell me how thousands of Christians allowed themselves to be, mar thousands of Christians allowed themselves to be martyred over the first century rather than recant the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. There's no logical reason. If you're perpetuating a hoax, you're not willing to die for your hoax. If you're perpetuating a hoax, you know you're in on it. You know it's not true. And if someone says, listen, I'm going to kill you or you recant, you say, you know what? Joke's gone far enough. Why did thousands of people die if they thought that it was a lie? He rose. But isn't it cool that maybe there's an eyewitness there who says, hey, he's risen. You know why you can trust it? I saw it, and I'm keeping this chain of eyewitnesses active. It went from him to me, and if you're making up a story, please don't take this the wrong way. Views of women have changed much over the last 2,000 years. But back in this day, the testimony of a woman was not even admissible in court. If you're making up a story, why would you make the first two bearers of the gospel message two women who were in duress and shocked? If you were making up a story, this is not the way that this happens. It's just so odd that it's true. It's the only possible explanation. Either Jesus was a complete lunatic and died the most tragic set of events ever because history says he was born. History says he died. At the time we say he died, history says he died the way we say he died. So either he just died on the cross, and if he died on the cross and he wasn't raised from the dead, we can pack up. 
all preaching is useless. Your whole life is useless. You have no basis to believe in an afterlife. You have no basis to believe that your sins can be forgiven. If he really wasn't raised from the dead, Jesus was not the son of God like he said that he was. He was not the Messiah. He gave some great teaching, but he impacts your life nothing at all other than to be yet another historic figure who died tragically thinking he was somebody that he wasn't because he sure thought he was the son of God. But if he really is who he says that he was and you really accept his resurrection, then you must also accept his lordship, his leadership, his kingship, his divinity, his forgiveness, his grace, his ability and permission to rule and to reign, then he's everything he said he was and everything you can understand and even the things you can't understand. It's an all or nothing proposition. It is life changing. If he really did come back from the dead with a new body and says that that's why we can have hope, then you can. Then you can rest on the fact that if that actually happened, that means it's not reckless for me to believe that he's gonna do the same thing for me not reckless for you to believe that in fact it makes a whole lot of sense it's hard to deny so he goes inside the tomb or the women go inside the tomb he says don't be don't be alarmed you're looking for jesus of nazareth who was crucified he isn't here he's risen from the dead look this is where they laid his body now go and tell his disciples including peter that jesus is going ahead of you to galilee you will see him there just as he told you before he died and then we've got one more verse The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. So what are they supposed to do? Go find the disciples. Go find Peter. Tell them Jesus is risen. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. He wants to meet up. Don't be alarmed. And what do they do? They be alarmed. They're trembling, they're bewildered, they're confused, they say nothing to anyone because they're too scared. And in the original manuscript, this is the last verse in Mark. This is where Mark ends the gospel. And you're saying, but in my Bible, there's more. We'll read the little words and the explanation. We'll we'll deal with this next week. The people later on were like, okay. This is where Mark ends it off, but we got to at least have a little epilogue. we got to tie up some loose ends here. So in the early manuscripts, and we'll talk about it next week, they tied up. They gave some summary statements. But Mark intentionally ends the story right there as if to say, so what are you going to do with what you just saw? What are you going to do with what you just read? He's saying, I've given you everything you need. You don't need a whole lot of other proof. I set out to give you the account of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I've given you everything you need to know and only what you need to know and all you need to know. And it's up to you. Do you believe it? And if you believe it, what changes as a result of that in your life? Now, isn't it good to know that if you read the rest of the gospel accounts, these women eventually composed themselves and could not stop talking? They couldn't stop telling people. In fact, if you read into the into the gospel of Acts, just, well, some people, I call it a gospel, the letter of Acts, Luke's account. We see even 50 days after the crucifixion that the church at that time, that 120 or some odd people, they were still hanging out, probably meeting in Mary, the mother of Jesus' house. There she is after her son is killed, her son raised from the dead, her son goes to heaven, and now her son becomes her Lord. Her son is now the God that she worships, and there she is. You see, they didn't stay silent for long. 
once it really settled into their heart, they weren't confused anymore. They weren't bewildered anymore. They weren't walking in a haze anymore. They had purpose. They had identity. They had meaning. They had a courage they didn't have a few days earlier. They had a courage to identify with Jesus in spite of, of what political or religious or social pressures were put upon them. Their life was completely consumed and transformed by the risen Savior. Look at what happened in Peter's life when he reconnects with Jesus. He is restored. Jesus says, go tell Peter. In other words, what Jesus is saying is what I did on the cross was enough to restore him. But Peter didn't come and ask for it. Jesus already provided for it. But, but Peter didn't make restitution. Jesus already paid his debt. This changes everything. This changes everything for us. My question for you this morning is what needs to be put to death in your life in order that you can really live, that you can really have life, that you can really move on from anxiety, that you can really move on from striving, that you can really move on from emptiness, that you can move on from just going through the motions of Christianity and have a vibrant, life-giving relationship with Jesus. There's nothing more I can say to you. He did it all. He did it all. And if you let the word of God saturate this, your heart this morning and you will just let, you'll just take that, accept that from him today, you will have life and you will have it to the full. Let me pray over you today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come back. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what do I mean by that? If you know that you've never made a confession of your sin to Jesus, that you've never made an, a confession of his identity, you've never confessed that to him. You've never confessed your belief in who he is. And you have never surrendered control of your life to Jesus. You're the person I'm talking to right now. And you have a choice in front of you, and it's very, very, very simple. You can choose to receive life today, or you can choose the pathway towards eternal death. That's as clear as I can make it. You can no longer say, no one explained it to me. You can no longer say, I didn't hear it from the scripture. You can no We've presented it to you with as little commentary as we can, the powerful history of what actually happened. And everything that the Bible said... Jesus was supposed to do, he did. Everything Jesus said he was going to do, he did. All of the implications and the ramifications of that, they are what they are. Through him you have forgiveness, you have identity, you have hope, you have purpose, you have meaning, you have life. Without him, you have self, you have pursuit, you have ambition. You have stress, you have anxiety, you have unanswered questions. You have an identity that will change. You have meaning that will come and go. You have purpose that is self-written. But you ultimately have eternal separation from him. You ultimately have death as the period on your sentence. Jesus went through all of that so that that doesn't have to be the period on your sentence. And all that it requires of us to have a saving relationship with Jesus is ABC, admit, believe, choose, admit that we're sinful and that we're broken. Listen, you already know, you are, and I already know I am. We know we're broken. We know we're wrong. This is why we're cool with laws and we're okay with things like that. Because goodness, if we didn't have rules and laws, what would everybody do, right? Because we know inside of us we're broken. You gotta admit that to Jesus. B, you have to believe that he's the son of God 
He lived a sinless life that you should have and I should have that we didn't. He died a death on the cross that we deserved and he didn't. He was our substitute and us. He took upon of us all of, he took upon himself all of the penalty of all of our sin and he died. But you also have to believe he rose again. He wasn't just born and lived and died and buried. He's alive today. He rose from the dead and because of that, we can have hope. And so you have to choose him to be your Lord and Savior. That means you cannot customize him. You cannot manage him. He manages you. He manages me. We live his way with absolute joyful obedience. If you're ready to pray that prayer, let me lead you in it. You can repeat it right where you're at right now. Dear Jesus, I admit I am a sinner. I have fallen short of the standard and example that you set. I believe, Jesus, that you're the son of God and you came to solve the problem of my sin forever. I believe you lived a sinless life. I believe you died on the cross in my place as my substitute. I believe you paid my debt in full. And God, I believe you accepted Jesus' payment over my debt in full. In the receipt of that payment, I believe, was the resurrection. Jesus, I choose you as my Lord, my Savior. I step off of the throne of my life and I invite you to sit in its place. I accept and receive your forgiveness. I accept and receive restoration. I accept and receive mercy. I am so glad to be your child. In your name I pray, amen. For those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, what changes in your life this resurrection day for you? Have there been some habitual sins that you've slipped into again that you've not taken such a strong line on? Have you gotten lazy in your pursuit of holiness? Have there been some things in your life between you and Jesus that used to be more important to you than they are today? Have you cooled down just a little bit in your pursuit of him? If any of those things are true, what a prime opportunity for you to just confess that to Jesus today, to receive his strength, forgiveness, and mercy, and to keep pressing into him. Whatever you do, do not diminish this just to being another day. Do not allow the power of the resurrection to not keep changing your heart over and over again. Don't look at it with old eyes. Look at it with fresh eyes today. Look at it with fresh eyes. If you have your bulletin with you, uh, why don't you just pull it out real quick, open it up. There's a connect card in there. If you prayed that prayer with me today about making a decision to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the most important thing you can do is tell somebody. And the easy way for you to do that is just by completing your connect card. Just check the box that says, you know, I began a relationship with Jesus today or um, I'm, I recommitted my life to Jesus. I'm making a fresh start today. Mark that box. You can put your name on it. Love it if you leave us an email or an address. Just some way we can celebrate with you. We're not going to invade your privacy. We're not about that. But we are very much a family. And we really value that type of connection. And if you made that decision today, that is nothing to be ashamed of. Don't know why we're so ashamed of those types of things. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Best decision you'll ever make in your life. And we want to celebrate with you. And an easy way for us to do that is to, you, to mark that for us. If you're new here, 
Mark that box on your Connect card. Just let us know, hey, this is my first time here. If you'd like on your way out, you can take that Connect card and stop by our new here booth. Uh, there's gift cards and stuff out there that, you can, that we just want to give you as a way of saying thank you. You made an effort to be here this morning, and you, you went through that uncomfortable exercise of coming to a new place for the first time, and, and, and we just want to honor you for that and thank you for doing that with us. For, for, the, for everyone else, listen, let me know what's going on in your life. A great way for you to do that, there's a little place on your Connect card, I think on the back or the front, depending on how you open up your bulletin, there's a place you can write prayer requests or an update or a praise report. I love getting those. I love getting those. I am taking some time off this week, but I'll make sure that I get, uh, that I get, those, I get those Connect cards from the office early this week. I'll, I'll be here on Sunday. You won't, you know, I'm not going far, but, um, you know, just taking a, little, taking a little break, a little rest to recharge myself. I'm a little worn down. I don't have any more hair to lose, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take, by rest, I really mean about 19 hours of, of projects in my house that have gotten way far behind. 19 hours that I'll turn into 25, and I'm adding a broken walk, washing machine on top of that, because Easter weekend, right? So, um, but these are clean, so you can hug me afterwards, and you won't smell like three-day-old laundry, and get used to these. You may not ever see these again, okay? So, because uh, yeah, you know my fashion is really what's hot on social media right now, but um, I we don't take ourselves too seriously, thank God, but we take Jesus very seriously. So um, it's just been a joy to be with you today. We're going to worship God in one more way, and that is through our giving. So if you're willing and able, will you stand with me this morning? Our, uh, our team of volunteers are going to come, and as we sing this closing song together, you have an opportunity to give of your tithes and your offerings, your gifts to missions in the Vision Fund. They'll pass the buckets up and down the aisle. And if, you would, if you're excited about giving today, you're welcome to give. I, I do want to thank you, and I say this all the time. Many of you give online, and we realize there's that awkward, awkward moment when you're like, I know I give online, and no one ever sees me putting anything in the offering bucket. I don't want people to think, listen, we, we, we don't go there. That's a, fine. That's, it's fine. If you just want it, you can just smile and pass it down the, pass it down the aisle. No one will know. Okay, if you do like to give digitally, you can do that through our website, echochurchonline.com. And if you like to just give together with your family, like if you like to get your kids and do this as a family, there's a little offering box on the way out. And uh, we're really excited about what God's doing. Can't wait over, uh, wait over the next few weeks. I'll be giving you some detailed updates about where we are with our facility church, or facility search and what's coming up over the next few months. Uh, big things that we're doing, outreach in our community and in our world. Can't wait to tell you about it. Let's pray uh, together this morning. Jesus, we love you. Goodness, you've given us so much. We can't possibly outgive you. And so we're not going to try to do that today. This is our way of just showing you another way tangibly how much we love you. Because we know if... Goodness, if you're Lord over our whole life, you're, you're Lord over our finances, you're Lord over our money, you're Lord over our earnings, and so it's a joy. Thank you for not making us give it all back. <laughs> Thank you for letting us use this as we see fit with your wisdom to be able to take care of ourselves, but we give you the first portion. It reminds us of who you are in our life, and we give it joyfully, not begrudgingly, not because we're commanded to, not because we're forced to. We do it because we love you. We love your kingdom, and we're excited about investing into more of what you're doing in this community. We love you, Lord. In your mighty name we pray, and everybody said... Amen.